Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning to continue in our study of 1 John. So if you'll take your Bible in hand and turn to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to just read chapter 2 through uh, chapter 2, 28 through verse, chapter 3, verse 10. While you're opening there, Justin and Randy both reminded me that since time rolled back, we have an extra hour. So that might mean, you know, you're not going to be hungry at least for another few hours. So we might take a little extra time this morning. <laughs> now, hopefully we'll keep it into a reasonable time. I know everybody's hungry. My stomach's already been growling this morning. So No, but we'll look to see what the Lord has Revealed in his word for us this morning, starting in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, reading through chapter 3 and verse 10. Friends, it's with great joy, truly, to hear from our living God this morning, to have him speak to us through his word. And so I invite you to hear it as the Lord speaks to you in his word this morning. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the, the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are the cho God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because he is because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And here's our verses for today. Everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, we come from last week where John gave us an in-depth look of what it means to be a child of God. If you'll recall, he said things like, a child of God, a Christian, is one who abides in Christ. One who practices righteousness. One who is God's child, his adopted child into the family. One who is Christ-like in their nature. And one who pursues purity. And this week, we dive into kind of a continuation of that. You could almost take this whole passage and make it a two-part series he continues on and making that argument of what does it mean to be a Christian, but instead of doing it from the positive aspects, calling out what a Christian is, he does it from a more negative aspect, calling out what a Christian is not. 
He talks about what an unbeliever is in this instance. As we've seen throughout the text, John does this, right? His, his plan throughout the text has been that he gives you contrasting statements to kind of give you a feel for what is truth and what is error, what is real and what is false, what is good and what is evil, what is about the saved and what is the unsaved. As you will see in our text for today, in these few verses, John will take us through the reality that sin, as regards Christian life, or as it seems, are completely antithetical. They can't be together. You cannot continue on in sin and profess to be a Christian. Those are separate things. Our culture today has become so against preaching that speaks about sin. It's against the Anything that's opposition to the culture really is considered wrong and bad. And any gospel Christian that speaks the truth, a, a true biblical believer that speaks truth and the good news of Jesus Christ can be labeled many different names. Christians that hold on to any sense of biblical orthodoxy or any sense of infallibility and iner in inerrancy of God's word are labeled things like bigots, racists perverts, homophobes, wicked, evil, and all sorts of other names. This is all simply to do with the fact that Christians desire to address the reality of sin and call for mankind everywhere to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to fulfill the Great Commission, to fulfill what the Lord Jesus himself told us to do, to bring the good news of salvation to all the nations. While some may argue that Christians are pointing out specks while avoiding the log in their own eye, and not saying this doesn't happen, the true desire of all Christians is for all of mankind to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, to see the reality of their sin, and to believe on him for salvation. However, our culture today, our world today, says if we address sinfulness in any way except to embrace it, to affirm it, to agree with it, to even encourage others into sin is wicked and wrong, deserving of what some would call canceling or doxing or any of these things. It is truly the epitome of Romans chapter 1. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. However, we as Christians, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are called to address sin as it truly is. It's an affront and an attack against the glory of God. In essence, much of sin is stating that my way is better than your way, Lord. It's negating the very words of Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth. And so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. While the world, to include many within the visible church, as sad as that is to say, those professing belief in Christ, will continue to cry out in anger against the Christian who is honest. We read the word of God this morning, and we find that John here in his first epistle will address sin as it is, in honesty and in reality. Here in our text today, John lays that out clearly. 
And so this leads us to our three points to help us travel through our text this morning. First, in verse 4, sin is opposed to law. Sin is opposed to law. Second, in verses 5 through 8, sin is opposed to Christ. Sin is opposed to Christ. And finally, in verses 9 and 10, sin is opposed to the new birth. Sin is opposed to the new birth. And so let us just dive directly into our text in, verses, in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What is sin? What is sin? We see at the end of the verse that it is lawlessness. He clearly says that, but I want to define it just a little further. Help us in our understanding of what is being spoken about here. Sin, if you look at common definitions, is to be without a share in, to miss the mark, to err, to be mistaken or to miss or wander from the path of a brightness and honor. To do or to go wrong, to wander from the law of God, to violate God's law. It's an offense, a violation of the divine law in thought and in act. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. And so John here is not describing a people group. He's not describing someone based on their ethnicity or their culture, but rather their practice. Rather what they do. Much of our culture again today is made it all about race or your culture, your status, right? As we've seen the ongoing war in Israel against Hamas, people have called for Palestinian freedom by saying it's an oppressor versus oppressed. That's the argument. That's how we want to see the world through the lens of. Instead of seeing the world through God's lens, which is that of sin and the reality of what sin does, John here is not talking about race. He's not talking about culture. He's not talking about status or oppressor versus oppressed. No, he talks about sin and the reality of it. That which violates God's order is truly an offense against him. And notice what he says about it. He says, the practice of sinning. We see that this is the first contrasting statement from what we saw last week. Back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29, if you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So instead of practicing righteousness, those that are born of him, he's talking about those that are practiced sinning. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Those that are pure pursue purity versus those who practice sin. Someone who is living in ongoing sin. Someone who is failing to put to death sin and essentially is living in it and being okay there, being comfortable living in their sin. This identifies someone who lives in this established and continual pattern of sin. And so everyone who makes a practice of sinning or everyone who lives in ongoing habitual sin that is not sought out nor found victory, he said, also practices lawlessness lawlessness. And I want to be clear before we just move on. I think it's easy when we read into this text and we think of specific sins, do we not? We think of things like, well, uh, as long as I'm not committing adultery, then I'm pretty much okay. As long as I'm not uh, watching pornography or as long as I'm not 
participating in mass murder or things like that, then I should be fine. But this is not what he's talking about. He says practicing sinning. Practice is sinning. This can be the person who is constantly caught up in gossip. This can be the person who is constantly caught up in what seems to be trivial in our minds, but before God is an affront against his glory and against what he has commanded us to do. Friends, I don't want it to... I don't want it to be a complete discouragement, but I also don't want you to be fooled into thinking, well, as long as I don't do that, I should be okay. I want you to think through what is sin really and desire to put that to death because that is against God and against his law and against his commands. And so he says sin is, he says here, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. It's the quality or condition of being without regard for the law. Behavior that is contrary or shows indifference towards it. You might think of some passages, right? When you think of lawlessness, it might take you back to Matthew chapter 7. We went through this uh, probably last year, verses 21 through 23, and I've mentioned it numerous times here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. Those that had no care for the law. No care for God's ordered commands. We see lawlessness used in other places in the New Testament. Matthew 23 Jesus speaking his uh, woes against the scribes and the Pharisees says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You have no regard for God's commands. Matthew 24, Jesus speaking about the end time says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will see this increase in lawlessness. Romans chapter 6 and verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your uh, members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, we just have a few more of these. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or fellowship has light with darkness. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then finally in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. These are just New Testament references here. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. And so what do we gather from those texts about lawlessness? What do we see happen? Well, lawlessness is an ongoing activity. It continues to grow and increase and beget more lawlessness. Many will be deceived in lawlessness, thinking that it will bring about salvation. They'll follow a lawless path, but think that they are saved. Truly, they are just sons of the man of lawlessness. But notice this last one in Titus. I want to just draw your attention back there. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Friends, in Christ there is redemption from lawlessness. We see that in reading through here. And therefore the Christian has no place to be yoked to lawlessness as one who practices righteousness. If they are ones who practice righteousness as First John has called us to do, then they have no reason to be yoked with anyone who is practicing lawlessness. And so this one who lives in ongoing habitual sin also lives in ongoing habitual disregard and indifference to God's law, God's command. Sin is lawlessness. He finishes out by restating here in verse 4, sin is lawlessness. It's pretty straightforward. If you had any questions as you were reading through the first part of verse 4, well, what does he mean here? He just lays it out plain for you. Sin is lawlessness. It's to have no disregard for the lawmaker God himself. Or no regard for the lawmaker himself. Friends, we frequently try and make excuses for things. Make excuses for sin by utilizing terminology that makes it sound not as bad as it is, right? We do this in a lot of places, really. We do that in death. People don't want to say that someone died. And so they say things like, they passed. Or they say things like, they're on to a better place. Or... They've departed from us. But they don't want to openly say things like, they've died, they're dead now. We use this in relationships and a variety of tragedies. And instead of saying things like, sin is lawlessness, and sin is a front against the lawmaker himself, we use terms like, whoops, I made a mistake. I messed up. However, John here is clear. John is straightforward and to the point Sin is lawlessness. Just have no regard for the lawmaker, God, and to have all regard for your own desire. And so in this first verse, John has laid out the battle line. In a way, he's kind of set the tone and he said, here it is. If you're practicing sin, if you're living in ongoing habitual sin, then you must ask the question, where am I really as regards Christ and salvation? Or maybe this will just confirm where you already thought you were. I know I'm not of God because I continue on in this sin with no desire, no push for battle, no sense of winning this fight. However, John doesn't just stop there. He expounds upon this. And so we're going to look at our next point here. Sin is opposed to Christ. In reading verses 5 through 8, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil." You know, John is speaking here of a personal perception of truth, he says. You know that he appeared. Speaking about Christ and his first coming into this world, and what was the reason? He says, in order to take away sins. Christ not only came to forgive us our sins, but to take them away. Take away the Greek word iro, to remove or to lift away. John chapter 1 and verse 29 says, the next day, 
he, speaking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ came that sin would be taken away in such a sense that, as we read in Ephesians, we should be holy and blameless before God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us and blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the taking away of sin on display. And he says here, you know that he appeared in order to take away his sins, and in him there is no sin. We affirm this, don't we? That Jesus is is and was perfectly sinless in all ways. Much of our world today has tried to make Jesus out to be a man, a, a mere man that, well, he may have sinned, he may not have, who really knows? But no, the word is clear, Jesus was sinless. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse, uh, verse, sorry, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no sin in him. And no one who abides in him, speaking of Christ, keeps on sinning. Remember, we talked about that terminology last time. What does it mean to abide? What does it mean to be? It's to remain or to stay, to really be, in a sense, resolved, loving and obeying the scripture, holding fast to the truth, submitting under the direction of the spirit, committing to putting to death sin. He says, if you abide in Christ, you cannot keep on sinning. Ongoing sin, once again, was antithetical or incompatible with Christ. You can't abide in Christ and live in sin. Those two things are separate. If one does continue to sin, then that's a sign that they don't really know Christ. Notice what he says next. He says, no one keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. To know Christ is to put to death sin. To continue sinning is simply to say you don't know him. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. I'm just going to turn back there briefly. Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 4 there. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father we might walk in newness of life. We might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, no one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or known him. Christians are known by a few things. There's a few items that we know and exemplify their, our knowing of Christ. Christians are known by their new hearts. 
Ezekiel chapter 36 that our brother brought last week at the end. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Christians are known because they have received forgiveness. Colossians chapter 1. By canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. They've been transformed. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to turn right back there as well. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 17 through 24. We see this new life. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Notice that ignorance. They don't know him. They're ignorant to him. Due to their hardness of hearts, they have become callous and and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, Christians are known by these things. They're known by their new hearts. They're known by the forgiveness they've received. They're known by the transformation and they're known by the spirit that they have received, right? The Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to turn back there and just read this for you again. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, what we see happening here is John is continuing to build these battle lines. He says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Because to see him and to know him means that you will exemplify these things. You will be given a new heart. You will receive forgiveness. You'll be transformed. You'll have the spirit within you. To be made adopted sons and daughters of the Lord. This gives them the ability to put to, sin, uh, put to death sin. Not to be sinless, not to be perfect, but to seek righteousness, to practice righteousness. To see ongoing habitual sins put to death. However, to keep on sinning is to effectively say, you don't know Christ. Friends, if you continue on and ongoing habitual sin, you in a sense are saying, I don't know Christ. I don't know the victory that comes in Christ. You may have heard of him. You may intellectually know him, but you do not know him in a saving way. John continues, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Little children is that term of endearment we've seen throughout our text here. 
Let no one deceive you. John desires that the false teachers that were propagating all kinds of false teachings and falsehoods and doctrines of demons, as Timothy would say, or as Paul would say in Timothy, would not cause them to stray. The deception that is being taught here is that practicing sin or lawlessness is acceptable and okay. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. That's the truth. Only those who practice righteousness, as 2 Timothy calls to, right? So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Those ones are the ones that are righteous, as Jesus indeed is righteous himself. Remember last week we talked about that, that the triune God is righteous. The very definition of righteous, our God is how we understand righteousness at all. Without him, we have no comprehension of what righteous means. Many of our world are atheists and agnostics and desire to push God out of their lives. But if you ask them the question, how do you then understand righteousness? How do you understand morality? They come to a sense in where they'll say, well, it's just by common consensus. Common consensus is the argument. Well, everyone in the room believes that not killing each other is probably the best thing, so we won't kill each other. No, friends, that makes no sense. Because one person is able to convince the rest that killing each other is the best solution, and then that makes it acceptable again. The only reason that we understand anything of morality or righteousness is because of God. He is the standard that we look to. He is the one that has given the way in which we understand what it means to be moral, what it means to be righteous, what it means to do good towards each other. Even outside of those that are believers, obviously we understand that you can't really do good per se, but in the sense of being somewhat moral, not killing each other all the time, that's all based on God's righteousness. He is the standard. It's his character that's the litmus test for us. That's how we all know that we fall short of his glory and his righteousness. And he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Those who continue an ongoing habitual sin is, as John 8, 44 says, of their father, the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning of time. He's probably referring to a couple of instances. He's probably talking about Satan's rebellion against God. Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's also probably pointing back to the initiation of rebellion within mankind back in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to turn back there with me, we're going to read a little bit from Genesis chapter 3. It's always such a great reminder of the creation story and where all this began. Not great in a good sense, but great in the sense of Christ's coming and saving us. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. 
But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, to be, or gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And here God says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, Satan has been in rebellion against God since the beginning. That's what he says, that he's been sinning since the beginning. The reason then that the Son of God appeared was to destroy these works of the devil. Jesus' entrance into the world at his first coming was for a purpose. And John relates one of those purposes here. It was to see the destruction of the works of the devil. We see some of those in that storyline of Genesis chapter 3. Those works of the devil instigating someone to sin. Temptations, false teachings, and false doctrines including instigating people to continue those, to teach those. Persecuting believers, as we see happening in the New Testament. All of these things are destroyed in Christ, friends. Therefore, the Christian as a believer is brought into all-out war against Satan as we put sin to death. But we find our victory in Christ and rely upon that and that alone. And so what John is saying here is that there's literally no compatibility, no compromise with sin or the devil. To do so would be to cross battle lines. You're at war and that would be to say, I'm going to go join the other side for a while. I'll be back. It's not what happens here. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And remember, though, that Christ came to destroy those works. And we'll see the utter destruction of those works in his return. 
And so, friends, John thus far has clearly shown that sin is opposed to the law. That sin is indeed lawlessness, an attack against against the very lawmaker himself, the holy and righteous God. Sin is also opposed to Christ, and that to continue to go on sinning is to go in war against Christ and the very purposes of his coming, to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Let's turn to our final section here, the reality that sin is opposed to new birth. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident you who are, or sorry, evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It's pointing back to that new birth. We've talked about this numerous times. I think I even preached on it probably last year or a year before. Back in John chapter 3, the new birth. We talked, I think, even about this last week. Jesus speaking with one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Back in John chapter 3. Verses 1 through 8, just read these briefly. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How sad, right? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, a man of great wisdom and knowledge, asks this question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The, uh, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I'm just going to read this actual next, next part as well. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Talk about all the stuff we've been talking about thus far. Knowing Christ truly, right? Knowing Christ truly, and that's to be born again. That's to be born again. No one born of God that's experienced this new birth, this birth in the Spirit, makes a practice of sinning. They do not go on in continual, habitual sin. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, 
through the living and abiding word of God. Matthew, you remember the parable of the sower. We've talked about that a few times over the last several weeks. There's a seed, and it's this seed of God's word, the truth, the gospel, entering into the lives of a person, to the life of a person, and either they receive it or they don't. Either it grows fruit or it gets choked out by weeds or scorched by the sun or it falls upon a rocky path where the birds come and eat. For God's seed abides. It's the person that this is truly penetrated in their hearts. They're bearing fruit. And he says they can not keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The believer, because of that implanted seed, the seed that's really taken root and born fruit, cannot continue on in this sin. He must be rid of it. Being born of God, friends, been, being given a new heart that is a slave to righteousness means that ongoing habitual sin must be dealt with. It's not an option. You don't have a choice. You have to deal with it. You have to put it to death. You have to. It's a command. It's not a, it's not a if you want to or if you're feeling up to it today or if today is a good day versus yesterday. If you're less tired today and things like that, no, it's you must put it to death. This one again does not, this once again does not equal sinlessness. This doesn't equal that they're perfect, uh, perfectionism as a Christian, but it does bring a sense in which habitual sin cannot live with you. Can't continue as if you were unconverted. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. He uses that word right there, evident, right? He makes it clear. There's no chance of you being able to misunderstand or misrepresent this or try and mix and mingle so you can get what you want out of it. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. A person falls on one side or the other. Either they're on the side of God, they're children of God, or they're the children of the devil. There's no separation, or there's no straddling the line. There's a separation there. It's clear that someone is either born of God or of their father, Satan himself. And he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John has already stated here two groups, right? He's stated the children of God and the children of the devil and it's made evident by their actions. It's made evident by what they do. It's not just their profession, right? Because we saw that back in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. It's not everyone who will just profess belief. But it's those that show it by their actions. It's this true change within the heart. There's a true transformation where that stone is taken out and the heart of flesh is given. And he says, to be of God is to practice righteousness, but to not practice righteousness is to be of the devil. And he continues something here. To be of God is to love your brother, as he mentioned earlier in chapter 2. But to not love your brother is to be of the devil. And so, believer, practice righteousness. Obey the commands of God and even, as we see from our Savior, love your brother especially. That's a, a special one here in our, our letter. 
I don't want to get too derailed. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I do want to just talk about that briefly. We've talked about loving our brother, and I want to just expound upon that for a moment. First, I'll say that I've failed it numerous times, as I'm sure we all have, but I have failed at times to love my brother well. However, I wanted to share a few practical tips, things that I just want you to take to heart and to help you in your desire to love the brethren well, love your brothers well. John Piper, in preaching from Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, gave some really great practical tips. He said, first, preach to yourself that others, other believers, no matter how imperfect, are the children of God your Father. Remember the status of your brothers in Christ. Look for evidences of graces in their flawed lives. One way to love your brother, we talked about this previously, is to give words of affirmation, to affirm things that you see happening in them. Number three, he said, remember you were once utterly alienated from God and cut off without a hope. What a helpful reminder if we recall ourselves where we came from and where we are now. What we deserve versus what we will receive. And this is all because of Christ. All of this is because of Christ. And reading one other thing, Ligonier had an article that I just thought this one paragraph was just so good, so powerful. Brotherly love consists in more than just feeling. It's more than just feeling. It's kind of like marriage, is it not? Marriage is not just about feelings because there's a lot of days where feelings are just not enough to keep this going. It's only by God's grace and a desire for active love, a desire to continue on in love, a desire to maintain what God has brought together. He says, brotherly love consists in more than just a feeling. It displays itself in actions. In fact, true brotherly love is costly. We must give of our own time, choosing the needs of others over our own in order to love people well. Christian love, in fact, is willing to pay the highest price of all. Loving others rightly means being willing to lay down our lives for them all the way to the point of death if we are so called. Jesus modeled this love perfectly for us, telling us that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. John chapter 15, verses 13, before he went on to die for the sake of his people. Friends, brotherly love consists in more than just a feeling. It's displayed in actions. And so we come to an end for our text today, and I think it's most pertinent that we close by asking the question, how does one forsake the practice of sin and live as those who are the children of God rather than those who are the children of the devil? Well, this all stems from the gospel. This all stems from knowing Christ. Now the question is, what is that? How do we understand that? The gospel is this good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entered into earth as a man. Truly God, truly man. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died on a cross in our place for our sins. He rose on the third day from the dead, triumphant over his enemies. In him, for all that believe, 
there is now no condemnation for sin. There's joyful, joyful expectation of living, of a life everlasting in the presence of the Almighty God. Friends, it's clear Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again in Ephesians, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've talked about that. He is righteous. He is the standard of righteousness. And so we have all fallen short of his righteousness. We have been called upon to be holy as he is holy, to be perfect and blameless before him, and yet we have failed to do that on our own. We've been caught in our own trespasses and our own sins. Outside of Christ, many of us even went about practicing sin, continuing on in sin. Yet God, in his rich mercy and grace, has seen it fit to give you a free gift of grace. A free gift of grace through the redemption found in Christ. It is by this gift of grace that a man is saved, and by that alone If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Friends, if you find yourself today practicing sin, you need the gospel. For it is the only true means of putting to death sin. It is only in Christ that one can be truly transformed, truly given a new heart of flesh, as we saw from Ezekiel. It's only by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that comes in salvation, and that's the only place you'll find it that one can be truly transformed and put sin to death. Oh, friends, many, many will tell you that you do not need Christ to stop your sinning. You don't need Christ to put to death sin, whether that be any type of addiction, whether that be any type of seemingly petty things, whether that be drugs or alcohol. They will tell you that you do not need Christ to turn your heart from anger and lust and self-worship. But I'll tell you this right now. You may stop the acts, but you will find yourself caught up in something else. You may be able to put to death the desire for alcohol or pornography or, or anything, but you'll find some other way to feed that desire. You'll find some other way to feed that need. Even in a sin of self-righteousness boasting about yourself for all that you've done to put to death the sin, believing that you indeed have just saved yourself out of it. It is only through the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance that comes in the saving work upon your heart that you will indeed put to death any sin. Friends, if you desire to practice righteousness, to be born of God, to love your brother, this all stems from the gospel. We think so much of the gospel as a first-time kind of thing. That's what you heard and you were saved by, right? The proclamation of the gospel that called upon your heart and you said, Wow, how wretched am I? How great is God? I must repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ because there's literally no way for me to make it till tomorrow. We think about this reality 
And we think it's a one-time thing. But friends, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need the gospel today. Just as you needed it back then. Just as you needed it on day one, you need it even more now to continue on in this battle. It is only in Christ that you are saved. It's only by him that you put to death sin. It's only by him that you continue to battle on in this ongoing war as you wait for your joyful, joyful day when you are united with your Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, there's many practical tips that I discussed earlier. Many practical things to give you skills in your battle against sin and for righteousness. But all of these are futile outside of Christ. All of this is all for naught out of, outside of Christ. They will not save you, nor will they bring about a true change of heart. All day, you could be saying, I'm going to love my brother by actions, but it's not going to change your heart. That only comes in Christ. All day you can say, I'm going to practice righteousness. I'm going to try and do everything I can to be considered righteous. But none of that's going to matter outside of Christ. There will be no, no true transformation outside of Christ. It's only in believing the good news of the Savior Jesus Christ that one will be truly transformed and desire to practice righteousness and to do so in a way that truly brings God glory. We have a plethora, a plethora of nonprofit organizations, people doing really great things. We all agree it's a good thing that people are fed. It's all, we all agree it's a good thing that medical care is available. We all agree even that it's nice that people do things for animals. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, though, none of those things will save a person outside of Christ. All of those things are just a true desire of the heart because it makes them feel good. Because they feel their own sense of self-glory in them outside of Christ. It is only in Him that you will be born of God. It is only in Him that you will love your brother well. Friends, hear my plea today. This is my genuine desire for you. Whether you are a believer here or not, whether you know the Lord Jesus Christ or not, you are in desperate need of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation and the thing that you are in desperate need to know is that he came into this world, the incarnate God, becoming truly God and truly man, two persons in one or two natures in one person, that he lived the perfect, sinless, obedient life, that he died on a cross in your place for your sin, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose victorious over his enemies, and that by believing in him, repenting of sin, you will be saved, and you will be truly transformed. Your heart will be made new, You'll be truly transformed in your very nature, putting on a new self and taking off the old. You'll receive the spirit that will work upon your heart to continue in the sanctifying work to bring about the reality that one day he will present you blameless and holy before the living God. The gospel is not, the only, not only a means of salvation, though. It's an ongoing gift for you. The gospel is an ongoing blessing upon your life. 
to point you back to the Savior, to point you back to Christ, wherein you find sanctification, where you find pardon for your sins, and where you find your preservation till the end.